The Eagle and Child, Episode 13. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 1, The Three Parts of Morality. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we come to the start of book three of Mere Christianity, which is entitled Christian Behaviour. And as always, I am joined by the bastion of morality and my new quote man, Matt. Well, thank you, David, for those very kind words. You're welcome. And I'm particularly excited for starting book three. We're going to be getting into Christian behavior, as David mentioned, and we're moving away from the intellectual arguments of whether God exists, and now we start to get into the meat of Christianity. What does it look like to be a Christian? How are we supposed to behave? And those are questions that I find particularly fascinating because they apply to our specific lives. Now, before getting into the book, in the chapter particularly, as David mentioned, I'm the new quote man. We're going to begin each episode with a different quote from C.S. Lewis. David and I realized over Thanksgiving that we quote C.S. Lewis all the time. And there's all the time. Constantly. And there's so many nuggets of wisdom in his quotes. And they're really a great thing to have and to, and to have a part of your arsenal, I guess. And it'll make people think you're smarter. It's worked so far. Absolutely. At least I think it has. So... We're going, to bring, we're going to bring a different quote every time. We'll share a little bit about where it comes from, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So what's today's quote? It's a good question. Lewis says, Really great moral teachers never do introduce new moralities. It is quacks and cranks who do that. And on that note, cheers. Cheers. Ooh, that's a good beer. What is it? We have been criticized for our beer selection, so I decided to go for something a little different that I hadn't had before. This is Franz's Kerner. It's spoken in a beautiful German accent, obviously. It is a Weiss beer, and it is Naturtrube, which my flawless German tells me means naturally cloudy. I feel like you chose this beer just to show off with your, <laughs> with your language skills. We know each other very well. <laughs> Weiss beer? <laughs> I would have said... Because it's not, anyone who doesn't know German, it is not spelled Weissbier. It's like Weissbier. Well, as we've established, I'm an international man of mystery and deeply, deeply cultured. So <laughs> I'm just wanting to share that with the people. Plus, it's German beer. It's going to be good. It is very good, actually. Now, before we really kick off the episode, you and I pray together off air before we start recording. But today I actually wanted to read a prayer. Because November the 22nd marked the date of the death of C.S. Lewis. And the Episcopal Church actually has a collect for him. And I came across this and just thought it was beautiful. What's a collect? So when people gather for prayer in a church, the, the people are told to pray. And then the presider, the priest, then says the collect. Effectively collecting up and summing up all of the prayers of the people before the main liturgy begins. And so this is the collect on November 22nd from the Episcopal Church. O God of searing truth and surpassing beauty, we give thee thanks for Clive Staples Lewis, who sanctified imagination, lighteth fires of faith in young and old alike. Surprise us also with thy joy, 
and draw us into the new and abundant life which is ours in Christ Jesus, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. That was beautiful. It's, it's lovely. I mean, just well done, Episcopal Church. I mean, that, that really sums up so much of the themes and aspects of Lewis's life. Beauty, imagination, joy, and life in Christ Jesus. Yeah, it just honors them very well. It's well written. Well done. Well done. <laughs> so today we're jumping into book three, which is titled Christian Behavior. And this first chapter, as mentioned in the very beginning, is titled The Three Parts of Morality. And so we're going to unpack what those parts look like and how they apply to our lives. The first point Lewis makes is many people think of morality as something which interferes, particularly with our enjoyment. And he actually kicks off by telling the story of a schoolboy who is asked to describe God. And he responds by saying that he thought that God is the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Isn't that so true, though? How often do you hear people describe the Christian faith as something interfering? I like that word. Stifling. Stifling. Preventing you from being your natural self. Being all that you can be. And don't worry, listeners, because Lewis really has some great responses to this. Yeah, he corrects this understanding. He says that moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. Morality is there for our own good, both individually and corporately. That machine is a good analogy because Lewis points out when you're being taught how to use a machine, of course, in the beginning, the instructor will keep saying, no, don't do it like that. Because imagine if you just jump into a car or you jump onto a machine, you have preconceived ideas how you should do things, but that can be dangerous. And so you're going to have someone telling you, don't do it like this, do it like that. And eventually you'll learn how it works. Yeah, think about learning to use a sewing machine, a laptop, a software program, a chainsaw. Your initial instincts on how it should work might not necessarily be right. I've taught a lot of people how to dance salsa and swing. And I do seem to spend quite a lot of my time in the early lessons telling people to stop doing things. Now, I'm not just being mean. I might be a little mean. But I'm not <laughs> being mean just purely because it's fun. Although it is. I'm telling people to not do this and not do that because it will help them dance better in the long run. It will help them fully adopt the style of dance that I'm teaching them. In related to that point, when I was in high school on the soccer team, I remember getting yelled at. And at that time, I took it pretty negatively. And a friend of mine pointed out to me, you should be more concerned when the coach stops yelling at you and pointing out what you're doing wrong, mm -hmm. because that's when they actually don't care about you getting better. If they think you're good enough that it's worth their time to make you better, it's a good thing that they're yelling at you and pointing out how you can become better. It's kind of similar, related to that. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if anyone has tried CrossFit. I tried a few different CrossFit gyms. And if you look at David, he's done it for a oh, long time. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one place that I went and the instructor said very little to me. You know what happened the following day? I was in agony. I'd been lifting the bar incorrectly. I'd been resting it on my neck and my neck Ooh. was killing me. That could be dangerous, actually. Absolutely. So don't do CrossFit. This is why I just now that stay... That is not the moral of the story. No, I just stay home and eat pizza. It's just a much safer <laughs> life. Or in this case, we're actually eating some sort of toffee bar. 
don't tell people that we're eating. <laughs> we actually, know, we, actually, we, no, we, 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 we know we drink beer. No, that's fine. But back to Lewis. As we try and operate the human machine, we are constantly trying things that don't work. And some people, maybe even many people, try and correct us and point us in the right direction. Friends, family, our clergy. But unfortunately, despite the best efforts of these people, very often we just want to do it our own way. Lewis says that some people prefer to talk about ideals and idealism rather than rules and obedience of the moral law. And I can understand that because it sounds much nicer. And often when we talk about presenting truth, we want to present it in its positive form, to lift it up as something to aspire to. We want people to be able to say yes to something rather than no to something else. So I can completely understand why some people might do that. But Lewis comes down on this like a ton of bricks. Because there's a lot of dangers to doing that. The first one is it can be misleading. Whenever I think of the word ideal, I think of my ideal and your ideal. Almost like a preference. Yes. And that can come across as it's a private thing, a private taste, as C.S. Lewis says. When a man says that a certain woman is his ideal, he doesn't mean that everyone else ought to have the same ideal. In such matters, we are entitled to different tastes and therefore different ideals. And so, David, who's your ideal woman? <laughs> I actually had that note to ask you that question. I uh, knew he did, and I wanted to dodge that bullet. <laughs> um, I would easily say Amy Farrah Fowler from The Big Bang Theory. She is my ideal woman. <laughs> she is nerdy, faithful, adorable. Yes. So anyone who's, first of all, actually, I can totally see that. <laughs> and, are, you, are you trying to say I'm Sheldon? No, you're way better than Sheldon. Thank you. And you're not as smart as he is. I'm just kidding. You can have Amy, by the way. I'll take Penny. I'll be fine. <laughs> so but, predictable, Matt. <laughs> I'm the shallow one. But no, that that's funny. So any girls, listeners out there, if they they relate to Amy, when you tweet, you might as well do a private message and uh, we'll give you David's number. <laughs> okay, I'm changing the password to our Twitter account. <laughs> anyway, back to Jack. He's saying that if we speak of morality as an ideal, we can quickly reduce morality to a kind of subjectivism, which we spent book one refuting. The idea of this, no, this moral law is objective and outside ourselves, not just our own personal tastes. It's interesting too. Today, that's very tempting to do. Okay. Everything seems to be relative or subjective today. People don't like the idea of an absolute objective truth. Yeah, and Jack says that it's very dangerous for a man to think of himself as a man of high ideals, because he might think that it's his own private taste and that everyone else isn't called upon to share it. Yeah, in fact, we are all equally called to the exact same ideal. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a nice way of putting it. The other thing connected to this is it can be dangerous because whenever we think of an ideal, it'd be ideal to be a perfect driver, but we never expect someone to be that. Mm -hmm. Where in this case, we are called to be that. We're gonna fall short and there's gonna be a grace but no one should be happy that they're trying to be that. Jack actually gives the example of gear changing, that there is a prescribed way of doing it because of the nature of a car. Because of the nature of a car, there is a way to correctly change gears. Exactly. Likewise, given that we have human nature, there is also a right way to live. It's not my personal preference. Yes. In connecting to that, 
the second danger, not only does it become subjective, but it can lead to pride. As you said, there's a perfect way to gear change. And we shouldn't be arrogant because we're striving to be perfect gear changers. Or because we didn't grind the gears as we were transitioning from the second gear into the third gear. Yeah, we should all be trying to do that. It's like, why would you go for anything else if you don't want your car to stall, if you don't want to destroy the gearbox, change gears well? Another analogy he uses is mathematics. Mm -hmm. When we're doing our sums or algebra, no one says, I'm very proud of you for trying to do that right. Well, no, of course we all should be trying to do it right. Or even the steps in your arithmetic. Yes. I'm, I'm pleased that on steps one, two, and three, you really were trying to do it correctly. Lewis points out that we know if we make errors in those steps, it's going to cause problems further down the line. Oh, in another episode, we talked about that sometimes if you want to have progress, if you want to go forward, sometimes you have to go back and fix your earlier mistakes. So if you make a mistake in the arithmetic... Go back and fix that line because it's going to cause you problems later. If you miss a turning on a road, sometimes you just have to turn around and go back and take the right route. And we all remember your Camino Santiago example. <laughs> yes, you are very Brilliant, right. obviously. For all these reasons and others, Lewis therefore doesn't think it's a good idea to talk about ideals and idealism. And we should instead talk about rules and obedience and morality because it's not simply a matter of personal taste and we want to avoid routes that might lead us to pride. Jack now shifts gears, with perfect gear changing, of course. Of course. And he looks at the ways in which the human machine goes wrong. And he identifies two primary ways, which I'm going to call the exterior way and the interior way. These aren't terms that he actually uses. He talks about the first and the second and later the third. But I wanted to give these things some labels. I think those are very accurate descriptions too. Thank you. So first of all, you've got the exterior way in which the human machine goes wrong. And that's when individuals either drift apart from one another or do one another harm or damage. And then you've got the interior way that the human machine goes wrong. And this is when an individual's different faculties and desires either drift apart or interfere with one another. And here again, Lewis leverages a brilliant analogy. Surprise, surprise. Yes, surprise, surprise. He talks about these parts of morality in terms of a ship or a fleet of ships, actually. An image that would have been very familiar to a people in a world at war. That, that's a good point. I actually forgot about that. He's very good at using things of his time period to mm. describe his teachings. If he was writing this today, he'd be talking about Netflix and Facebook and all the others. He would. Which side thing is what great teachers do. So yeah. Lewis is a great teacher. And, and Paul did the same thing when he goes to Mars Hill. Yes. He, he doesn't start off with the Old Testament prophets because nobody knew who they were. Yep. He starts off with the altar to the unknown God. Yes. When he's writing to the Philippians, this Roman colony that took their Roman citizenship very seriously, he speaks about us having a citizenship in heaven. Yes. Bringing this back to Lewis's ship or convoy analogy... In order for a voyage to be successful, two things have to happen. First, the ships need to not collide or get in another's way, which is that exterior way, as David pointed out. The second is engines need to be in good order. The steering needs to be working properly. You can have the best plan or course or path mapped out for a ship to ensure you don't hit another one. But if you have terrible steering and a terrible engine, good luck preventing yourself from colliding. That's the interior way. 
But additionally, Lewis actually adds a third criteria. He says, however well the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York and actually arrived in Calcutta. The destination is fundamentally important. Now, just going back to that interior and exterior dimensions, I can't help but think of recent events in the news. There have been lots of allegations of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, rape, the whole nine yards. And those are all terrible, and I wouldn't for a moment say it was justified in any way, shape, or form. But at the same time, I can't help but ask, are we really that surprised? Yes, we have laws and rules that you can't sexually assault somebody. You shouldn't do that. These are, these are laws on the books. However, what have we spent the last few generations drilling into everyone's heads? We effectively try and destroy virtue, encourage sexual license. Should we really be that surprised that if we're pouring all of this into somebody's interior life, that it doesn't manifest itself externally? This is what you would expect almost when you have a society that has put pornography in the hands of kids. The average child starts looking at 11 years old. Think about that and for a second. I think that's actually late. The last statistics I saw were even younger than that. It's getting earlier and earlier. That is, is as you pointed out, I really actually like that. Pouring into your interior way. That's going to overflow into the exterior way. Yeah. I think, was, why, I think it was St. Augustine. He said, what you, put in, what you put into your eyes and your ears, that goes into your heart. What you put yes. in your heart will eventually find its way out into your hands and what you do. So from Jack's description, I would now say that morality consists of three dimensions. The exterior, that's our social relations with other humans. The interior, and that's the harmonizing of what religious people typically call their interior life. And what I'm going to call the teleological. And it's in relation to our purpose, our ultimate destination, our ultimate end. What was I made for? And Jack actually then gives a second analogy. He says, think of humanity as a band playing a tune. To get a good result, you need two things. Each player's individual instrument must be in tune. So that's what we'd call the interior dimension. And also each must come in at the right moment so as to combine with the others. So that's what I'd call the exterior dimension. The instruments might all be in tune and might all come in at the right moment. But even so, the performance would not be a success if they had been engaged to provide dance music and actually played nothing but dead marches. So that's what I call the teleological dimension. That's that the purpose of a band is to play the music that people want to hear. And interestingly, when speaking about morality today, we tend to ignore the last two. And Jack points out that makes sense because that's the most obvious one. Our social relations, the way we interact with each other is the obvious place to start. And it's also generally agreed. But there's a problem. Here's what Lewis says. Unless we go on to the second thing, the tidying up inside each human being, we're only deceiving ourselves. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that we deceive ourselves if we only focus on external morality? He explains it in terms of the analogy he's already given, this convoy. He says, what is the good of telling the ships how to steer so as to avoid collisions if, in fact, they're such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all? What is the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that, in fact, our greed, our cowardice, our ill-temper and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them. Now, he's not speaking against rules and laws and all that good stuff. But I think what he is doing is he's speaking against this false notion among some people in society that we can simply fix everything by having laws and systems. He's saying that if that's all we focus on, 
we're going to end up in trouble. And nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. You can try to reform the system. You can try to put these rules in place. But bullies or abusers or people who take advantage of it, if you don't work on the interior way, they're going to find another way to do it. They'll just adapt and overcome. They'll if, find, they'll, if they exploited the first system, they'll exploit the reformed one. It might be harder, but they're still going to do it. And not to get political at all, but one statement, it's amazing that whenever, notice that when politicians change laws to try to prevent greed, a greedy person is going to find a way around it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do to stop that. You need to focus on the interior side. And foster a society where virtue is prized. Yes. And Lewis points out, you cannot make men good by law. And I wonder how Jack's thinking was affected here by his participation in two world wars. Because you had the Great War, World War I, and everybody thought that this could never possibly happen because we had a system in place. You had these two massive opposing sides that were so powerful that it was meant to be a deterrent so that nobody would ever start a war. But yet, they found themselves at war. And also, after the Great War, new governments were installed, and it was thought that they were so well-structured that they were going to usher in an era of peace. Yet what happened? In those countries, you had the rise of totalitarian regimes. Weren't those systems meant to ensure peace? What went wrong? In all of this talking of the interior way makes me reflect on a brilliant book by David Brooks. Have you heard of him? No. He wrote this book called The Road to Character, and he's a New York Times columnist. And I believe he's Catholic, at least very familiar with it. In every chapter followed a different person who had incredible virtue, whether religious or non-religious. One of the examples I remember very distinctly was Dorothy Day. Mm -hmm. From The Catholic Worker. Yes. And so... His motivation for this book was he noticed in today the people that our children are seeing as heroes aren't really the most virtuous people. And so he wanted to write a book on just these incredible humans. And I even remember reading it thinking, I want to be like this person. And that's the point. And all of that's focused on that interior way, i.e. that road to character, as he put in his title. And we can't even stop there. Uh, we can't neglect this third dimension of reality, what I call the teleological dimension, the one which relates to our ultimate purpose, our final end. Lewis reminds us of this by reminding us of something that we've discussed in earlier episodes. He says, religion involves a series of statements about facts, which must be either true or false. If they are true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. But if they are false, quite a different set. If God is our creator, it makes a difference because if somebody else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties, which I should not have if I simply belong to myself. And also, if I'm immortal, this is one of Lewis's lines he loves coming back to, you don't deal with mortals, you only deal with people who are going to live forever. If I'm immortal, then this earthly life is going to simply be a blip in the sight of eternity. He says... There are a good many things which may not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live for 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. His next point is, is shocking. He points out, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. 
In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for what it would be. Doesn't that make so much sense of the afterlife? When I first read that, I thought, what a brilliant way to put that. It might be absolute hell in a million years. And you can actually wrap your head around that. Mm -hmm. Think about yourself becoming incredibly jealous and more bad-tempered for a million years. That sounds like a pretty miserable person to be. That actually connects to an analogy that I believe we've used before, where on a long journey in airplane, when you start, if you get slightly off path in the beginning and you project that all the way to the end, if you're starting in New York, you can end in LA or up in Seattle. Are you saying Seattle is hell? <laughs> Man, from what I've been told, I haven't spent a lot of time in LA, but that might be the hell with the traffic. And then Jack says that for the rest of this book, he's going to simply assume that Christianity is true. He spent book one proving the existence of God, book two reasoning about the God of the Bible. But for the rest of this book, he's going to speak about Christian behavior with the simple assumption that Christianity is true. And if you're a listener and you're not convinced of Christianity yet, I would still very much encourage continuing to listen. Because I actually found digging into Christianity, the way that it explains our behavior, the way we're supposed to act, the way we're supposed to interact, to be the absolute best description of reality. And that, to me, was actually an argument for Christianity in its own right. So whether you agree with the first book or not, there's still plenty of chance to fall in love with Christianity and to see its beauty. And truth. And particularly since we're talking about morality, goodness. As usual, the outline will be in the show notes, and please like, share, and subscribe. I know that there have been some issues over the last couple of weeks with Apple not accepting reviews for podcasts, but they seem to have finally sorted all of that out. So if you've been waiting to write us a lovely review... There's probably been a lot of those people waiting. I'm sure there are lots of people, yes. Uh, So if you've been waiting to give us a lovely review and give us five stars, now might be a good time to do it. We'd greatly appreciate it. And you can contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net. Tweet us at Pints with Jack, particularly any ladies who feel very connected to Amy Farrah Fowler. <laughs> and next week, we're really going to dive into the subject of virtue, when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>